0: Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo, Book Two, Chapter Seven A Wedding Night. A few moments later, our poet found himself in a small room with a vaulted roof, very snug, very warm, seated before a table which seemed to ask nothing better than to borrow a few stores from a hanging cupboard close by, with a good bed in prospect, and alone with a pretty girl. The adventure partook of the nature of magic. He began seriously to think himself the hero of some fairy tale. Now and then he gazed about him, as if in search of the fairy chariot, drawn by two winged steeds, which could alone have transported him so swiftly from Tartarus to paradise. Occasionally his eyes were riveted on the holes in his doublet, to bring himself back to actual things and lest he should quite lose sight of land. His reason, floating in imaginary realms, had only this thread to cling to. The young girl apparently took no notice of him. She came and went, moved a stool, chatted with her goat, smiled, and pouted. Finally, she seated herself at the table, and Gringoire could study her at his leisure. You were once a child, reader, and you may be lucky enough to be one still. You must more than once, and for my part, I spent whole days at it, the best days of my life, have pursued from bush to bush on the brink of some brisk stream in bright sunshine some lovely green or azure dragonfly which checked its flight at sharp angles and kissed the tip of every twig." You will remember the loving curiosity with which your mind and your eye followed that buzzing, whizzing little whirlwind, with blue and purple wings, between which floated an intangible form, veiled by the very swiftness of its motion. The airy creature, vaguely seen amid the quivering wings, seemed to you chimerical, imaginary, impossible to touch, impossible to see. But when the dragonfly at last rested on the tip of a reed, and you could examine, holding your breath meanwhile, its slender gauzy wings, its long enameled robes, its crystal globe-like eyes, what amazement you felt, and what fear, lest it should again fade to a shadow and the creature turn to a chimera. Recall these sensations, and you will readily appreciate what Gringoire felt as he beheld invisible, palpable form, that Esmeralda, of whom he had hitherto had but a glimpse amidst the eddying dance and song, and a confused mass of people. Becoming more and more absorbed in his reverie, he thought, This, then, is Esmeralda, a celestial creature, a street dancer, so much and so little It was she who put the finishing stroke to my play this morning. It was she who saved my life this evening. My evil genius, my good angel, a pretty woman upon my word. And she must love me to distraction to take me in this fashion. By the by, said he, rising suddenly with that sense of truth which formed the basis of his character and his philosophy, I don't quite know how it came about, but I am her husband." With this idea in mind and in his eyes, he approached the young girl in so military and lover-like a fashion that she shrank away from him. What do you want? she said. Can you ask me, adorable Esmeralda? replied Gringoire, in such impassioned tones that he himself was astounded at his own accents. The gypsy girl stared at him. I don't know what you mean. Oh, come now, added Gringoire, becoming more and more excited, and thinking that, after all, he was only dealing with the ready-made virtue of the Court of Miracles. Am I not yours, sweet friend? Are you not mine? And quite innocently, he clasped her by the waist. The girl's bodice slipped through his hands like a snake's skin. She leaped from one end of the little cell to the other, stooped, and rose with a tiny dagger in her hand, before Gringoire had time to see whence this dagger came. Proud, angry, with swelling lips, dilated nostrils, cheeks red as crab apples, and eyes flashing lightning. At the same time, the white goat placed itself before her, and presented a battle-front to Gringoire, bristling with two pretty, gilded, and very sharp horns. All this took place in the twinkling of an eye. The damsel had turned wasp, and asked nothing better than to sting. Our philosopher stood abashed, glancing alternately at the girl and the goat in utter confusion. Holy Virgin!" he exclaimed at last, when surprise allowed him to speak, "here's a determined pair!" The gipsy girl broke the silence in her turn. "You must be a very bold rascal!" "Forgive me, Mademoiselle," said Gringoire, with a smile; "but why did you marry me, then?" "Was I to let them hang you?" "So," replied the poet, somewhat disappointed in his amorous hopes. You had no other idea in wedding me than to save me from the gibbet? And what other idea should I have had? Gringoire bit his lips. Well, said he, I am not quite such a conquering hero as I supposed. But then, what was the use of breaking that poor jug? But Esmeralda's dagger and the goat's horns still remained on the defensive. Mademoiselle Esmeralda, said the poet. Let us come to terms. I am not clerk of the Chatelet, and I shall not pick a quarrel with you for carrying concealed weapons in Paris in the face of the provost's orders and prohibition. Yet you must know that Noël Lescrivain was sentenced to pay ten Paris pence only a week ago for wearing a broadsword. Now, that is none of my business, and I will come to the point. I swear to you, by all my hopes of paradise, that I will not come near you without your sovereign leave and permission. But give me some supper. To tell the truth, Gringoire, like Despro, was very little of a Don Juan. He was not one of the chivalric, musketeering kind who take girls by storm. In the matter of love, as in all other matters, he was always for temporizing and compromising and a good supper, in friendly society, struck him, especially when he was hungry, as an excellent interlude between the prologue and the issue of an intrigue. The gypsy made no answer. She gave her usual scornful little pout, cocked her head like a bird, then burst out laughing, and the dainty dagger disappeared as it came, Gringoire being still unable to discover where the bee hid her sting. A moment later, a rye loaf, a slice of bacon, a few withered apples, and a jug of beer were on the table. Gringoire began to eat greedily. Judging by the fierce clatter of his iron fork against his earthen plate, all his love had turned to hunger. The young girl seated near him looked on in silence, evidently absorbed in other thoughts, at which she occasionally smiled while her gentle hand caressed the intelligent head of the goat as it rested idly against her knee. A yellow wax candle lit up this scene of veracity and reverie. However, the first cravings of hunger appeased, Gringoire felt somewhat ashamed to find that there was but one apple left. "'You don't eat, Mademoiselle Esmeralda?' She answered by a shake of the head and her pensive gaze was fixed on the arched roof of the cell. What the deuce is she thinking about, thought Gringoire, and looking to see what she was looking at? It can't be the wry face of that stone dwarf carved on yonder keystone which so absorbs her attention. What the devil? I'm sure I can stand the comparison. He raised his voice. Mademoiselle. She did not seem to hear him. He spoke still louder. Mademoiselle Esmeralda! Labor lost. The girl's mind was elsewhere, and Gringoire's voice had no power to call it back. Luckily, the goat interfered by softly pulling her mistress by the sleeve. "'What do you want, Jolly?' said the gypsy, hastily, as if roused suddenly. "'The creature is hungry,' said Gringoire, delighted to open the conversation. Esmeralda began to crumple some bread, which jolly nibbled daintily from the hollow of her hand. However, Gringoire gave her no time to resume her reverie. He risked a delicate question. Then you don't want me for your husband? The young girl looked steadily at him and replied, No. For your lover? continued Gringoire. She pouted and answered, no. For your friend, went on Gringoire. She looked at him fixedly once more, and after an instant's reflection said, Perhaps. This perhaps, so dear to philosophers, emboldened Gringoire. Do you know what friendship is? he asked. Yes, answered the gypsy. It is to be brother and sister, two souls which meet without mingling. Two fingers of one hand. "'And love?' continued Gringoire. "'Oh, love,' said she, "'and her voice trembled and her eye brightened. "'That is to be two and yet but one, "'a man and a woman blended into an angel. "'It is heaven itself.' "'The street dancer assumed a beauty as she spoke.' which struck Gringoire strangely, and seemed to him in perfect harmony with the almost oriental exaltation of her words. Her pure, rosy lips half smiled, her serene and innocent brow was clouded for the moment by her thought, as when a mirror is dimmed by a breath. And from her long, dark, drooping lashes flashed an ineffable light which lent her profile that ideal sweetness which Raphael has since found at the mystic meeting-point of the Virgin, the Mother, and the Saint. Nevertheless Gringoire kept on. What must one be to please you, then? He must be a man. And I, said he, what am I? A man with a helmet on his head a sword in his hand, and golden spurs on his heels. "'Good,' said Gringoire. "'Dress makes the man. Do you love anyone? As a lover? As a lover?' She looked pensive for a moment. Then she said, with a peculiar expression, "'I shall know soon.' "'Why not tonight?' said the poet tenderly. "'Why not me?' "'She cast a serious glance at him. "'I can only love a man who can protect me.' "'Gringoire flushed and was silent. "'It was evident that the young girl alluded to the slight assistance "'which he had afforded her in the critical situation "'in which she had found herself a couple of hours previous. "'This memory, blotted out by the other adventures of the evening, "'returned to him. "'He struck his brow.' "'By the by, mademoiselle, I ought to have begun there. Forgive me my foolish distractions. How did you manage to escape from Quasimodo's claws?' The question made the gypsy shudder. "'Oh, the horrid hunchback!' she cried, hiding her face in her hands. And she shivered, as if icy cold. "'Horrid indeed,' said Gringoire, not dropping the subject. "'But how did you contrive to escape him?' Esmeralda smiled, sighed, and was silent. "Do you know why he pursued you?" continued Gringoire, trying to get an answer by a roundabout way. "I don't know," said the girl, and she added quickly, "but you followed me too. Why did you follow me?" "In good faith," replied Gringoire, "I have forgotten." There was a pause. Gringoire slashed the table with his knife. The girl smiled, and seemed to be gazing at something through the wall. All at once she began to sing in a voice which was scarcely articulate. Cuando las pintadas aves mudas están y la tierra. When the painted birds are silent. She broke off abruptly, and began to fondle jolly. That's a pretty creature of yours, said Gringoire. It is my sister, she replied. "'Why do they call you Esmeralda?' the poet ventured to ask. "'I've no idea.' "'But why do they?' She drew from her bosom a small oblong bag, fastened to her neck by a string of beads, made of some sweet-scented gum. This bag gave forth a strong smell of camphor. It was made of green silk, and had in the centre a large bit of green glass, in imitation of an emerald.' "'Perhaps it is on account of that,' said she. Gringoire tried to take the bag. She drew back. "'Don't touch it. It's an amulet. You will injure the charm, or the charm you.' The poet's curiosity was more and more eagerly aroused. "'Who gave it to you?' She put her finger to her lip and hid the amulet in her bosom. He tried her with other questions— "'but she scarcely answered him. "'What does the word Esmeralda mean?' "'I don't know,' said she. "'To what language does it belong?' "'I think it is a gypsy word.' "'So, I suspected,' said Gringoire. "'You are not a native of France.' "'I know nothing about it. "'Are your parents living?' "'She began to sing to an ancient heir. "'A bird is my mother.' my father, another. Nor boat nor bark need I, as over the sea I fly. A bird is my mother, my father, another. Very good, said Gringoire. At what age did you come to France? When I was very small. To Paris? Last year. Just as we entered the papal gate, I saw the reed-warbler skim through the air. It was the last of August. I said, it will be a hard winter. So it has been, said Gringoire, charmed at this beginning of conversation. I have spent it in blowing on my fingers to keep them warm. So you have the gift of prophecy? She fell back into her laconicism. No. Is that man whom you call the Duke of Egypt the head of your tribe? Yes. But it was he who married us, timidly remarked the poet. She made her usual pretty grimace. I don't even know your name. My name? You shall have it if you wish. Pierre Gringoire. I know a nicer one, said she. Cruel girl, replied the poet. Never mind, you shall not vex me. Stay, perhaps you will love me when you know me better. And then you told me your history so confidingly, that I owe you somewhat of mine. You must know, then, that my name is Pierre Gringoire, and that I am the son of the notary of Gonesse. My father was hanged by the Burgundians, and my mother ripped up by the Picards, at the time of the Siege of Paris, now twenty years ago. At the age of six years, therefore, I was left an orphan, with no soul to my foot but the pavement of Paris. I don't know how I managed to exist from six to sixteen. A fruit seller would give me a plum, a baker would throw me a crust. At nightfall I would contrive to be caught by the watch, who put me in prison, and there I found a bundle of straw. All this did not hinder me from growing tall and thin, as you see. In wintertime I warmed myself in the sun, under the portico of the Hotel de Seine, AND I THOUGHT IT VERY ABSURD THAT THE BALE FIRES OF ST. JOHN SHOULD BE DEFERRED UNTIL THE DOG DAYS. AT THE AGE OF SIXTEEN, I WISHED TO LEARN A TRADE. I TRIED EVERYTHING IN TURN. I BECAME A SOLDIER, BUT I WAS NOT BRAVE ENOUGH. I TURNED MONK, BUT I WAS NOT pious ENOUGH. AND THEN, I'M NO DRINKER. IN DESPAIR, I BECAME A CARPENTER'S APPRENTICE, BUT I WAS NOT STRONG ENOUGH. I had more liking for the schoolmaster's trade. True, I did not know how to read, but that was no hindrance. After a time, I discovered that I lacked some necessary quality for everything. And seeing that I was good for nothing, I became a poet and a composer of rhymes, of my own free will. That is a trade that one can always take up when one is a vagabond, and it is better than stealing as certain thievish young friends of mine advised. By good luck, I one fine day encountered Dom Claude Frollo, the Reverend Archdeacon of Notre Dame. He took an interest in me, and it is to him I owe it that I am now a genuine man of letters, knowing Latin, from Cicero's offices to the necrology of the Celestine Fathers, and being ignorant of neither scholastics, poetry, nor rhythm, that sophism of sophisms. I am the author of the miracle play performed today with great triumph, and before a great concourse of people in the hall of the palace. I have also written a book, which will make six hundred pages, on the wonderful comet of 1465, which drove one man mad. I have also had other successes. Being somewhat of an engineer, I worked on Jean Mogg's great bomb— which you know burst on Charenton Bridge the day that it was to be tested, and killed twenty-four of the curious spectators. You see that I am by no means a bad match. I know a great many sorts of delightful tricks which I will teach your goat. For instance, how to take off the Bishop of Paris, that accursed Parisian whose mills bespatter all those who pass over the miller's bridge. And then, my miracle play will bring me in plenty of ready money, if they pay me. Finally, I am at your service, I and my wit and my science and my learning, ready to live with you, lady, as it may please you, soberly or merrily, as husband and wife, if you see fit, or brother and sister, if you prefer. Gringoire ceased, awaiting the effect of this speech upon the young girl. Her eyes were bent on the floor. Phoebus she said in an undertone. Then, turning to the poet, Phoebus, what does that mean? Gringoire, scarcely comprehending the connection between his words and this question, was nothing loath to display his erudition. He answered, drawing himself up, It is a Latin word signifying sun." "Sun," she repeated, "'It is the name of a certain handsome archer "'who was a god,' added Gringoire. "'A god,' repeated the gypsy, "'and there was something pensive and passionate in her tone. "'At this moment, one of her bracelets became unfastened and fell. "'Gringoire stooped quickly to pick it up. "'When he rose, the girl and the goat had disappeared. "'He heard a bolt slide across a small door,' doubtless communicating with a neighboring cell, which was fastened on the other side. "'At least I hope she has left me a bed,' said our philosopher. He walked around the room. There was nothing fit to sleep upon except a long wooden chest, and even that had a carved lid, which gave Gringoire a feeling when he stretched himself out upon it very like that experienced by Micromagos when he slept at full length upon the Alps. Come, said he, making himself as comfortable as he could. I must submit to fate. But this is an odd wedding night. It is a pity. There was something simple and antediluvian about this marriage with a broken jug, which I liked. Book Four, Chapter One kind souls. It was some sixteen years previous to the date of this story, on a fine morning of the first Sunday after Easter, known in France as Quasimodo Sunday, that a living creature was laid, after Mass, in the Church of Notre Dame, upon the bedstead fixed in the square outside, to the left of the entrance, opposite that great image of St. Christopher, which the carven stone figure of Master Antoine de Zessart, Knight, had contemplated on his knees until the year 1413, when it was thought proper to pull down both saint and believer. Upon this bed it was customary to expose foundlings to public charity. Whoever chose to take them did so. In front of the bedstead was a copper basin for alms. The sort of living creature lying on the board upon this Sunday morning, in the year of our Lord, 1467, seemed to excite in a high degree the curiosity of the somewhat numerous group of people who had gathered around the bed. This group was largely composed of members of the fair sex. They were almost all old women. In the foremost rank, and bending over the bed, were four who, by their gray hoods and gowns, seemed to belong to some religious community. I know no reason why history should not hand down to posterity the names of these four discreet and venerable dames. They were Agnès la Herme, Jeanne de la Tarme, Henriette la Gaultière, and Gaucher la Violette. All four widows, all four good women from the Étienne-Audrey chapel— who had come out for the day by their superiors' permission, and conformably to the statutes of Pierre d'Ailly to hear the sermon. However, if these worthy Audriettes were, for the time being, obeying the statutes of Pierre d'Ailly, they were certainly willfully violating those of Michel de Brache and the Cardinal of Pisa, which so barbarously condemned them to silence. What on earth is it, sister, said Agnes to Gaucher, gazing at the little foundling as it shrieked and writhed upon its bed, terrified by so many observers. "'What is the world coming to?' said Jeanne, if that is the way children look nowadays. "'I don't know much about children,' added Agnes, "'but it must surely be a sin to look at this thing.' "'It's no child, Agnes. "'It's a deformed monkey,' remarked Gaucher. "'It's a miracle,' continued Henriette La Gautier. Then, observed Agnes, it's the third since Laetari Sunday, for it's not a week since we had the miracle of the mocker of pilgrims divinely punished by Our Lady of Daubervilliers, and that was the second miracle of the month. This foundling, as they call it, is a regular monster of abomination, added Jean, He howls fit to deafen a chorister, said Gaucher. Will you hold your tongue, you little screamer? To think that the Bishop of Reims should send this monstrosity to the Bishop of Paris, went on La Gaultiere, clasping her hands. I believe, said Agnès La Herme, that it's a beast, an animal, a cross between a Jew and a pig, something, in fact, which is not Christian, and should be burned or drowned. I'm sure I hope, exclaimed La Gaultiere. "'that no one will offer to take it.' "'Oh, good gracious!' cried Agnes. "'I pity those poor nurses in the foundling hospital "'at the end of the lane, as you go down to the river, "'just next door to his lordship, the bishop, "'if this little monster is given to them to suckle. "'I'd rather nurse a vampire.' "'What a simpleton you are, poor La Herme!' cried Jeanne. "'Don't you see, sister, that this little wretch "'is at least four years old?' and that he would have less appetite for your breast than for a piece of roast meat. In fact, the little monster, for we ourselves should find it hard to describe him otherwise, was no new-born baby. He was a very bony and very uneasy little bundle, tied up in a linen bag marked with the monogram of Monsieur Guillaume Chartier, then Bishop of Paris, with a head protruding from one end. This head was a most misshapen thing; there was nothing to be seen of it but a shock of red hair, an eye, a mouth, and teeth. The eye wept, the mouth shrieked, and the teeth seemed only waiting a chance to bite. The whole body kicked and struggled in the bag, to the amazement of the crowd, which grew larger and changed continually around it. Dame Aloise de Gondelaurier, a rich and noble lady, leading a pretty girl of some six years by the hand, and trailing a long veil from the golden horn of her headdress, stopped as she passed the bed, and glanced for an instant at the miserable creature, while her lovely little daughter, Fleur-de-Lise de Gondelaurier, arrayed in silk and velvet, spelled out with her pretty little finger for the permanent inscription fastened to the bedstead, for foundlings. "'Really?' said the lady. "'turning away in disgust. "'I thought they only put children here.' "'She turned her back, throwing into the basin a silver coin "'which jingled loudly among the copper pence "'and made the four good women from the Etienne-Audrey home stare. "'A moment later, the grave and learned Robert Mistricole, "'protonotary to the king, "'passed with a huge missile under one arm "'and his wife under the other,' "'Demoiselle Guillemette Maresse, being thus armed on either hand "'with his spiritual and his temporal advisers. "'A foundling,' said he, after examination, "'found apparently on the shores of the river Phlegathon.' "'It sees with but one eye,' remarked Demoiselle Guillemette. "'There is a wart over the other.' "'That is no wart,' replied Master Robert Mistricol. That is an egg which holds just such another demon, who also bears another little egg containing another demon, and so on ad infinitum. How do you know? asked La Lamares. I know it for very good reasons, answered the protonotary. Mr. Protonotary, inquired Gaucher La Violette, what do you predict from this pretended foundling? The greatest misfortunes, replied Mr. Cole. "'Ah, good heavens!' said an old woman in the audience. "'No wonder we had such a great plague last year, "'and that they say the English are going to land at Harfleur. "'Perhaps it will prevent the Queen from coming to Paris in September,' added another, "'and trade so bad already. "'It is my opinion,' cried Jean de La Tarme, "'that it would be better for the people of Paris "'if this little sorcerer here were laid on a faggot rather than on a board.' A fine flaming fagot, added the old woman. That would be more prudent, said Mr Cole. For some moments a young priest had been listening to the arguments of the Audriettes and the sententious decrees of the protonotary. His was a stern face with a broad brow and penetrating eye. He silently put aside the crowd, examined the little sorcerer, and stretched his hand over him. It was high time, for all the godly old women were already licking their lips at the thought of the fine flaming faggot. "'I adopt this child,' said the priest. He wrapped it in his cassock and bore it away. The spectators looked after him with frightened eyes. A moment later he had vanished through the Port Rouge, which then led from the church to the cloisters.' When their first surprise was over, Jean de la Tarme whispered in La Gautier's ear, I always told you, sister, that that young scholar, Monsieur Claude Frollo, was a wizard. Chapter 2 Claude Frollo Indeed, Claude Frollo was no ordinary character. He belonged to one of those middle class families called indifferently, in the impertinent language of the last century, the better class of citizens, or petty nobility. This family had inherited from the Brothers Paclet the estate of Tierschap, which was held of the Bishop of Paris, and the twenty-one houses belonging to which had been the subject of so many suits before the judge of the bishop's court during the thirteenth century. As holder of this fief— Claude Frollo was one of the 141 lords and nobles claiming quit-rents in Paris and its suburbs, and his name was long to be seen inscribed, in that capacity, between those of the Hôtel de Tancarville, belonging to Master François Lorez, and the College of Tours, in the cartulary deposited for safekeeping at Saint-Martin-des-Champs. Claude Frollo had, from early childhood, been destined by his parents to enter the ranks of the clergy. He was taught to read in Latin. He was trained to look down and speak low. While still very young, his father put him at the convent school of Torquay in the university. There he grew up on the missal and the lexicon. He was, moreover, a sad, serious, sober child, who loved study and learned quickly. He never shouted at play, took little part in the riotous frolics of the Rue du Fouar, knew not what it was to dare alapas et capillos laniare, give blows to the face and pull the hair, and had no share in the mutiny of 1463, which historians gravely set down as the sixth disturbance at the university. It seldom occurred to him to tease the poor scholars of Montague about their capotes, the little hoods from which they took their name, or the bursars of the College of Dormans about their shaven pates and their motley garb of grey, blue, and violet cloth, Azurini coloris et bruni, as the charter of Cardinal de quatre words it. But, on the other hand, he was faithful to the great and little schools in the Rue Saint-Jean de Beauvais. The first scholar to be seen by the abbot of Saint-Pierre de Val, as he began his lecture on canon law, was always Claude Frollo. Glued to a column in the saint Ventre gesille school, directly opposite the speaker's chair, armed with his inkhorn, chewing his pen, scribbling on his threadbare knee, and in winter blowing on his fingers to keep them warm. The first auditor whom Master Miles Delier, doctor of decretals, saw hurrying up all out of breath every Monday morning at the opening of the doors of the Chez-Saint-Denis school, was Claude Frollo. Accordingly, at the age of sixteen, the young scholar was quite able to argue matters of mystical theology with a the father of the church, of canonical theology with a the father of the councils, and of scholastic theology, with a doctor of the Sorbonne. Theology mastered, he plunged into decretals. After the master of sentences, he fell upon the capitularies of Charlemagne, and devoured in turn, in his appetite for knowledge, decretal after decretal. Those of Theodore, bishop of Hispala, those of Bouchard, bishop of Worms, those of Eve, bishop of Chartres, then the decree of Gratian, which followed the capitularies of Charlemagne, then the collection of Gregory IX, then the epistle Super Specula of Honorius Third, He gained a clear idea of, he became familiar with, that vast and bewildering period when civil law and canon law were struggling and laboring amid the chaos of the Middle Ages a period beginning with Bishop Theodore in 618, and ending with Pope Gregory in 1227. Decretals digested, he turned to medicine and the liberal arts. He studied the science of herbs, the science of salves. He became skilled in fevers and bruises, in wounds and sores. Jacques Despard would have given him the degree of doctor of medicine, Richard Elan, that of surgeon. He also took all the degrees in all the other arts. He studied languages—Latin, Greek, and Hebrew—a triple shrine then but little worshipped. His was a genuine thirst for acquiring and treasuring the facts of science. At eighteen, he had done with the four faculties. Life seemed to the youth to have but one purpose—to gain knowledge. It was about this time that the excessive heat of the summer of 1466 caused an epidemic of the plague, which carried off more than 40,000 souls in the V County of Paris, and among others, says Jean de Troyes, Master Arnaud, astrologian to the King, who was a very virtuous, wise, and pleasant man. A rumor spread through the university that the Routier shop was especially subject to the disease. There Claude's parents lived, in the heart of their estate. The young scholar hastened an alarm to the paternal mansion. On entering, he found that his father and mother had died the night before. A baby brother was still living, and lay crying in his cradle. He was all that was left to Claude of his family. The youth took the child in his arms and walked thoughtfully away. Hitherto, he had lived for science only. He now began to live in the present. This catastrophe marked an epoch in his existence. An orphan, the eldest, the head of a family at the age of 19, he was rudely recalled from scholastic dreams to actual realities. Then, moved by pity, he was filled with love and devotion for this child, his brother and a human affection was a strange, sweet thing to him who had loved nothing but books before. This affection grew to a singular degree. In so virgin a soul, it was like a first love. Parted in infancy from his parents, whom he scarcely knew, cloistered and, as it were, immured among his books, eager to study and to learn everything— Hitherto paying exclusive attention to his intellect, which delighted in literature, the poor student had had no time to learn that he had a heart. This little fatherless, motherless brother, this baby, dropped unawares from heaven into his arms, made a new man of him. He saw that there were other things in the world than the speculations of the Sorbonne and the verses of Homer— that man required affection, that life without tenderness and without love was only a noisy, miserable, unfeeling machine. Only he fancied, for he was at the age when illusions are still replaced by illusions only, that the ties of family and kindred were all that was necessary, and that a little brother to love was enough to fill up a whole life." He therefore yielded to his love for little Jeanne with the passion of a character which was already energetic, ardent, and concentrated. The poor, frail creature, a pretty, fair-haired, rosy, curly-locked child, an orphan with none to look to for support but another orphan, stirred him to the very soul. And like the serious thinker that he was, he began to meditate about Jean with infinite compassion. He thought and cared for him as for something very fragile and very precious. He was more than a brother to the boy. He became a mother to him. Little Jeanne was not yet weaned when he lost his mother. Claude put him out to nurse. Besides the estate of Tierschap, he had inherited from his father the fief of Moulin, which was held of the square tower of Gentilly. It consisted of a mill upon a hill, near the Chateau de Winchester, now beset. The miller's wife was just then nursing a fine child. It was not far from the university. Claude himself carried little Jean thither. Henceforth, feeling that he had a burden to bear, he took life very soberly. The thought of his little brother became not only the refreshment the object of his studies. He resolved to devote himself wholly to the future of one for whom he must be answerable to God, and to have no other wife, no other child, than the happiness and prosperity of his brother. He accordingly became more than ever attached to his clerical calling. His merits, his learning, his position as the direct vassal of the Bishop of Paris, "'opened wide all the doors of the church to him. "'At the age of twenty, by a special dispensation from the Holy See, "'he was a priest, and served as the youngest of the chaplains of Notre-Dame "'at the altar called, from the lateness of the Mass, said at it, "'Altare Pigrorum.' "'There, more than ever buried in his dear books, "'which he only left to make a hasty visit to the mill,' This mixture of wisdom and austerity, so rare at his age, soon made him respected and admired by the cloisters. From the convent his reputation as a learned man spread to the people, among whom it had been somewhat changed, a frequent occurrence in those days, to the renown of a sorcerer. It was as he was returning on Quasimodo or Low Sunday, from saying the sluggard's mass at their altar, which was close by the gate of the choir leading into the nave, to the right, near the image of the Virgin, that his attention was aroused by the group of old women chattering round the bed for foundlings. He approached the unfortunate little being who seemed to be so much hated and so much threatened. Its distress, its deformity, its desertion, the thought of his own little brother, THE WILD DREAD WHICH AT ONCE STRUCK HIM, THAT IF HE SHOULD DIE, HIS DEAR LITTLE JEAN MIGHT ALSO BE FLUNG UPON THAT BOARD TO SUFFER, ALL THIS RUSHED INTO HIS HEART AT ONCE. A GREAT WAVE OF PITY SWEPT OVER HIM, AND HE CARRIED OFF THE CHILD. WHEN HE TOOK THE CHILD FROM THE SACK, HE FOUND IT TERRIBLY DEFORMED INDEED. THE POOR LITTLE IMP HAD A WART OVER HIS LEFT EYE. His head was buried between his shoulders, his spine was curved, his breastbone prominent, his legs crooked. But he seemed lively, and although it was impossible to say in what language he babbled, his cries proclaimed a certain amount of health and vigor. Claude's pity increased at the sight of so much ugliness. And he vowed in his inmost soul, that he would educate this child for love of his own brother, so that whatever faults little Jean might in the future commit, he might always have to his credit this charitable deed done for his benefit. It was a sort of investment of good works in his little brother's name. It was part of the stock of good deeds which he decided to lay up for him in advance, in case the young rascal should one day run short of this sort of money the only coin which will be accepted at the toll-gate of paradise. He baptized his adopted child and named him Quasimodo, either because he wished to mark in this way the day upon which the child was found, or because he wished to show by this name how imperfect and incomplete the poor little creature was. Indeed, Quasimodo, one-eyed, hump-backed, and knock-kneed, was hardly more than an apology.